For me, fashion is a verb. So it's true fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. How are you all doing? Thanks for all your lovely messages about last week's incredible interview with the photographer Giles Dooley. What an amazing man. Now, I did say that this week's episode is kind of related in that our guest also used to work in commercial fashion, but now dedicates their energies to humanitarian work. She is Helen Storey, former runway designer, current professor at the Centre for Sustainable Fashion and the world's first designer in residence for UNHCR, which is, of course, the UN High Commission for Refugees. For the past few years, Helen has been visiting and working with refugees in Zatri Camp in Jordan, which is home to more than 75,000 displaced people. She got there via fashion and this amazing project, she calls it Dress for Our Time, where she made this incredible gown with a big hood and this kind of flowing train out of a decommissioned refugee tent that used to house a family in Zatri. And the dress debuted in St Pancras Station in London. She'd had it kind of projected with all this data about climate change and its impact on our physical world. And it was right before the COP21 in Paris. And so as delegates passed through the station, they would stop and really get talking when they saw the dress. Now, it's not the first time that Helen has used fashion as a Trojan horse to get people thinking about big issues. Wait till you hear about her previous projects. She's just amazing. By the way, if you'd like to help me keep bringing you these stories, don't forget you can contribute via my Patreon page and there's a link in the description here. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And join the conversation on social media. You'll find me at Mrs Press on Instagram and Twitter. But now let's get inspired by the wonderful Helen Story. Helen Story, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. I'm very lucky actually to catch you in London because you're about to nip off, aren't you? Where are you going? I'm going to Zatari Refugee Camp in Jordan. You're the artist in residence there. Tell us about that role. This year it's being called Designer in Residence to reflect in a way... Um, well, I've always been someone that sat between being an artist and being a designer. So the designer part, I mean, something has to have a use, has to improve something... The artist part allows you to go where you need to go. So I'm somewhere in between those two things. But what took me to the camp was a dress, uh, which was the dress for our time, made out of a decommissioned UNHCR refugee tent. You're also a professor of fashion science at University of the Arts London. Yes. Karen Franklin, the former editor of ID, former stylist, current professor of diversity and fashion at Kingston University. She calls you not your average professor. I thought that was rich coming from her. Ah, I take that as a compliment. But you were saying to me before that actually, if the university or the educational institution is bold enough, a professor might choose their title according to their work and it could be something as whack as... Well, yes, someone told me who's got the very jammy title of Professor of Doubt. And I think they're at Cambridge University. But there's something uh, both humorous about that, but also very humble. So um, I might have nabbed that if it hadn't already been taken. You actually studied at Kingston. I did, yes. We might get into that later, your whole story of how you got here, but I do want to begin really by talking about Zatari. Yep. Zatari is a refugee camp in Jordan that started in 2012 with a collection of tents and now, yes. I just researched this, is supposedly the fourth biggest city in Jordan. It's got 
Yes, it's nearly 80,000 people. Yes, there. home to 80,000 people who uh, fled there in 2012. And I mainly work with uh, women and young girls, but I often go to the camp with the University of Sheffield, who are mainly a bunch of bloke scientists, which means they get to work with men and boys. And in a way, that reflects the culture there, which is that they are treated quite separately. But something like 20% of the people living in this camp are children. 40% of children. 40%, is yeah. it? 80 is babies it? born a week, 25 weddings a week. Yeah, there are many kids who live there who believe that is the world. I read this statement, I suppose, from the latest fact sheet that comes from UNHCR, and they said, Syrian refugees are ground down after years of exile, their savings long gone, challenged by reductions in free key services, and an absence of hope to an end to the conflict in Syria. I mean, people feel that maybe they'll never get out of there. It's a very complicated situation, and in the four years I've been going backwards and forwards, I realise there are multiple perspectives. So I can see it through the eyes of refugees, so clearly I am not one. I can see it through the eyes of the NGOs, I can see it through the eyes of the diplomats that come and visit. There's many, many perspectives. When I first went there, the UNHCR had just done a survey about how many Syrians wish to return home. So this is four years ago, and the figure was 80%. And they did that very recently again, and the figure is now 8%. What, because they feel that there is no going back? or the, It's complicated, but I, th- I think formally we're allowed to say some of the reasons. Some of the reasons are that Assad is sent out a decree, if you like, that anybody returning between the ages of 18 and 38 would be recruited straight back into the army on return. That's not much of an incentive for the generation that would rebuild Syria. And then last year, uh, he gave Syrians a year to return if they wanted to reclaim their land. Uh, Whether their houses were standing or rubble, the government would take it if they didn't come back in the year. That year is up. So it's a difficult place to return to from that perspective. And it's a difficult place to return to because of what's happening in the north of Syria at the moment, which is still hell on earth. And whilst that is the north, it's still Syria and it still shows that the capacity for human suffering and crimes against humanity is still very present. Can I ask you what your reaction was the first time you went there? The first person you meet when you go to Zatari is you. It's your own beliefs, it's your own sense of right and wrong, and I hadn't realised that, but on my second trip I realised that that's the feeling that I got, was that it was you were confronted with yourself. But well, how did it come to that feeling? Well, underneath any reaction is you, to start with, and when you first go into the camp, it is quite overwhelming. I was quite aware that I was being shown things that many sort of foreign visitors must be shown. Um, I was on some sort of a, a route, as it were. But I've also now seen, you know, hundreds of other visitors coming and going, uh, from delegations through to MPs and ministers and all sorts. And it is possible, if you're only going for the day, to keep your emotional coat on and leave. But actually, the the best way to be able to work in a situation where something genuine is being bettered is to take your coat off. And that's how you bring a fashion analysis to this. Uh, yeah, I suppose <laughs> so. Yes. yes, I can't help it. <laughs> but you, um, you sort of want to get up close with your emotional responses, especially as an artist. Well, it's um, it's a, a living question there when you're there, which is the degree to which you're willing to be vulnerable is the degree to which you have the capacity to help do some good. 
The second thing I learned after the first person you meet is yourself is you have to listen and take no good ideas with you. Any ideas that you bring of your own will be ignorant and every idea has to be completely equally co-created. So the first few visits I went, I was just listening and asking questions. Wow. Did you go there with a plan that then you had to dismantle, for example, to set up the centre? Uh, the centre wasn't. Yeah, well, it wasn't even on the horizon when I first went. And in many ways, the centre was a culmination of two or three years of working really closely with the women in the camp, and was a, a natural widening of the collaborations that we'd been having. So, how did you begin? The very first project that we did there was actually with the young girls there called the Tiger Girls, and the Tiger Girls are self-named, which is these inspiring girls enjoy reading. Their ages between ages of oh, nine and eighteen. It's an acronym. These yes. inspiring girls enjoy reading. Yeah, how lovely it is. And they are vulnerable and formidable. And I met them first, and on my first trip actually, and they had created a little play about what they had learnt in English. But then we started talking to them about their wishes. And the project, the first project that we did, which ended up being called the Love Coats, was a project created out of their wishes, and they had four. One was that many of these girls hadn't started their periods and, and um, in that culture it means that they can be as Spice Girls as they like, if you like, until they, there's a requirement to become more modest about dress. So they love bling. <laughs> so they were really interested in doing something around fashion. They really wanted to learn a new skill. They were terrified of winter, so they wanted to be warm. And they oh, deeply it's very missed... very affecting that, isn't it? Like the first thing, oh, they will love fashion and clothes... Yeah. I'm terrified of being cold in this place. And also also having nothing to gift. There's a bit of noise. We're just going with it. We are in yeah. the basement of a restaurant. We're very lucky to be allowed in here. So <laughs> we're going with the noise. So over the top of the knife and forks, more seriously, what they really missed was being able to gift. And in that culture, friendships and bonds between families generosity and hospitality are a huge part of Syrian culture so having nothing to gift were felt like a form of deprivation and so what I realized is actually to do a project in Zatari in those early days you really needed to go three times you needed to go once to listen you needed to come away and kind of distill it all and try and make sense of what you think you have heard and what that might be and then go and present it again and sort of reiterate, you know, this is what I heard, have I heard it correctly, what do you think to this idea, and then co-create the idea, and then on the third visit you deliver it. Wow. But I've learned so much about working in Zathory. You can have the best laid plans and they will go out the window. You have to be incredibly flexible, and you always have to put them first. One of the things that we also learned early on was that uh, the women love making soap and perfume. So I asked them what they felt they needed next. And what they were suggesting was interest from outside in terms of how they could take a product that they were making and turn it into a very professional product that could meet health and safety standards and would be of interest to others in the world. So I found, through a colleague at Unilever, actually, a company called Givadan. And if you were to sort of smell any designer scent around the world, the chemistry is theirs. So they're the chemists behind most of the things that we deem to smell beautiful and many of the flavourings in our foods. And I went to present to them in Paris and within two hours they said yes. 
So what you're saying is I have this group of amazing women who love to make soap and perfumes. They have these skills. We want to take a product out of Zattery into, I guess, the global market. What do you think? And they went, all right then. Yes. <laughs> really? Um, I mean, in, in a sense, what's happened is, as ever, slightly more complicated than that in that there are multiple markets. Mm-hmm. So there's the market within Zattery, because as you say, it's a city, a growing city now. There's the market outside and the fact that 87% of refugees don't live in camps, so there's a huge market outside and a huge potential labour market outside as well. So they're selling locally and internationally. Faith is a huge component of their lives and some of the things I've heard them say have sort of blown me away really from this is where God wants me for now Mm. through to um, what hope means. And... I see my role as trying to continue that sense of hope, but in very practical ways. And then I now would consider I have a lot of friends there, and they're very unusual and unique friendships. I can leave, they can't. I mean, they can locally in terms of you know work permits and things, but they can't come here. And I think one of the relationships that's become one of the richest is with Tarek, who's the... Uh, when I first met him, he's an ex-construction worker from Syria who was carving rather beautiful sculptures with a, a pin and a pencil. Extraordinary. We'll share some links so you can see images of these almost magical pieces. I bought you one. Oh, you didn't? Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's not good. It's no good on the radio, as it were. It is. is you it? can record my reaction. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So that's a chain out of a continuous form of lead. It's a minor magical marvel. When you look at... In real life, it's incredible. He is carving the lead yeah. in the pencil so in the carves, finest way possible. It, yeah, yeah. so <gasps> what you get is a linked chain. I mean... I technically don't even know how he does it. It's, you can't it's extraordinary. It, yeah. But if you think about making do with what's available, I can't even... There could be no finer example. No. I mean, the most remarkable piece he's made was when he ran out of pencils, we started looking at other objects that were naturally in the camp and many of them of course are domestic objects and he picked up a broom and carved his entire life in the shaft of it and we're now it was spotted by the venice biennale and it's now going on show the the venice biennale next next, this year he found an avenue for his art in the camp extraordinary beautiful work using just what was lying around Mm. but some of the work that you've done with him has allowed him to then take it elsewhere I guess and there's a lovely video that we'll share a link to you've just made a short film with the filmmaker David Betteridge and you can see Tarek there talking about his hopes to be an international artist your work with him allowed him to do a collaboration where it was sold just before Christmas on matches and he collaborated Mm. with a London-based jeweler called Blue 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 Burnham but so Blue's using recycled gold yes and it takes this Actually, I kind of like it more in the pencil because <laughs> it's so extraordinary. <laughs> but what you're doing, I guess, is is opening up a pathway or a bridge for yes, him so to have other opportunities. it takes his original work. That's the first piece of God. work I saw was of a hand coming out of nowhere holding another hand, which to me is symbolic of everything that happens in Zattery. We'll and share a picture. Helen's mm. showing me on her on her laptop this, this pencil, a lead pencil, but the pencil's been carved away to expose the lead and there are two perfect hands clasped. Incredible. There's other art in Zattery. I mean, art is used for what cannot be expressed. So a lot of the work that the Tiger Girls did when I first met them spoke of their fear of early marriage, which is still a very sensitive and prevalent social situation within the camp. 
And in a way, part of the Tiger Girl's existence is to show that education is an alternative and that over time they now have quite a few role models within the Tiger Girls from two Taekwondo championships to girls that have won the Jordan Marathon. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. One of the women in David Betridge's film talks about the creation of a space that enables them to be economically, socially and emotionally sufficient. That's right. That will be Achlam, whose name means dreams. And um, we spotted each other across a room (laughs) on my very first visit. It was very, very spooky in a way. I just thought, of course I don't know you, but I know you. And she looked at me like I know you. And it was just like two souls that somehow knew each other. And we've been working very closely ever since. And she's, in a way, the reason why there are so many women now who are professional at making soaps and perfumes. So one of the things we've had to be careful of is not going in and setting up new kinds of dependency. So to go in and do training is in order to train the most talented there so that they in turn, when you're not there, can continue that level of training. So everything that we do in the camp has to be sustainable. And in some senses, the work that we do there, the original work we do there, needs to be invisible because it's the ability to pass it on to others that makes it something that they can then live by. You also worked on jewellery projects with the women. Mm. Yeah, that was interesting. I mean, what I'm finding is that I, one by one, I have to let go of what I would consider progress or what I might personally consider as female empowerment because I need to take the culture into account. I need to take the living situations into account. So, for example, when we did the jewellery project, it was Tarek and his friend who were much more comfortable with taking creative risks, whereas I, I realised very quickly that the women in their circles of making, the bonding that was going on was as important as the thing they were making. The friendships were as important as the things they were making. I saw somewhere you talking, I'm not sure if it was in the David Betridge film or if I read it somewhere, but you talked about the problems with inequality when someone like you comes into a camp like Zattery and then you talked about the space for making that allows equality yeah. to flourish, yeah. that almost is a meeting of equals over the practice of using the hand. And yeah. It's quite interesting. When we were finished working with the Tiger Girls on the Love Coats project, they were very inspired by that. And so we, we sat, had a sat down and with a kind of what's next project. And they said they would really love to work on embroidery. So with the help of London College of Fashion's existing relationship with Ellie Saab, who's a bit like sort of you know YSL of Middle East, if you like, they agreed to come to camp. So they came to camp and we built these frames and we were doing lots of embroidery. I was very aware that nobody is really capturing what it means to be Syrian now and um, making new history and new stories about what it means to be Syrian now, particularly as so many of them can no longer go home or are choosing not to go home. So with the Tiger Girls, we were wondering if we could create a Syrian stitch that might capture what it meant to be Syrian now. And behind this was also the sense that the war still continues, that many of the people in the camp still have family members who are in Syria. And so it seemed really important that whilst we had learnt that there is an equality in making, when you are making, you are often free of time. Mm. Um, there's a part of the brain that I actually think lies down and relaxes. I've read um, about this actually. There's a meditative quality to it almost induces in you a kind of forced relaxation in the repetitive action. Of- I think it's a repetitive action. And I think when the mind is gently drawn to a process of creation that you cease thinking about future and past. 
And that possibility is available to everybody and anybody, any time. I found that there's something in making and there's something in the, the language of kindness and physical presence that allows hope and possibility to turn into something. In the camp, they've got their local market and one of the reasons why we also wanted to set up the centre was precisely because, you know, there are 400 delegations that come to the camp a year. Uh, many do want to buy something. I was quite sort of bullish in the sense that I cannot bear the poverty purchase aspect of things. So what I was looking to do was to genuinely find a product that was created from the heart and soul of the people in Zattery, but was something that nobody would want to let go of. Your colleague, who's a mutual friend of ours, Becca, she was saying to me that you told her that some people were making very strange trinkets because they thought that's what might be wanted by these foreign visitors, like yeah. Eiffel Towers or yeah. <laughs> I don't know what, yes. rather than making things they wanted to make that spoke of their culture or their... Well, I totally understand why they would do that because it's not a choice about making money, they have to. So just like in other parts of the world, people will go to extreme lengths to create whatever it is they think you want. And that really was a case of that. It was some creative people in the camp thinking that if they created something that Westerners already identified with, that they'd be willing to part with money. And so part of the kind of uh, mutual educating of each other, uh, mm -hmm. because I have a huge amount to learn from them, but what I've been able to pass the other way is that you don't realise it's a part of your heart that we want. And we want to feel like a genuine connection to you. So you don't need to turn it into what you imagine we want. You're already doing it. How beautiful. And that's been sometimes hard for them to accept. And depending on what you're making as well, you know, if you're working within how we would generally recognise the arts, then it's about giving them the confidence that there's an expectation in the arts, that there's a self-expression in there. It's not a commodity. I know sometimes it becomes a commodity, but certainly in the early days, when someone invests an interest in an artist, it's because they feel genuinely touched by something and something has been shared. Mm. If you're making soap, that's slightly different. But even there, we've played around with different hybrids of leaving messages in soap, um, leaving pieces of jewellery in soap, trying to create something that is just something that would be kept as, a, as a, a point of preciousness rather than just thrown away or an excuse to be able to give a donation. What do your friends who you work with in the camp think of you, do you think? How do they see you? Well, they're very warm towards me. There is one other uh, researcher who comes from the University of Washington who is there as often as I am, but works in a very different way to me. In a way, these are experiments in new social relationships as much as anything else. And are also a growing sense, as one gets older, that the need for meaning in one's life and doing something that feels nourishing by default has to be a two-way relationship. And so my being in the camp and the relationships that we're striking up are all part of this creative process. Do you, stay, you said before that you had gone sometimes for seven-week stretches. Do you stay inside the camp? Where do you live? The camp is a curfewed space, yeah. so even the NGOs leave at uh, four. Yeah. But it's a four-hour trip every day into the desert and back out. So the commute is actually quite something. And the camp is theirs at night, and I think that's right, yeah. to not constantly feel guarded. Let's talk about how you got there. We mentioned earlier Address for Our Time, an extraordinary project that I first became aware of when around COP21 in Paris, when the Paris Agreement was signed. So that dress was exhibited in St Pancras Station in November yes. 2015. 
So for those on the way to the COP, they would see it. Yeah. What did they see? Shall I tell you a little bit about why it existed at all? <laughs> so over the years, over the last 15 or 20 years, I've spent a lot of time feeling that it's right to work with science and that it's the meeting of science and, and the arts and the technologies that is where our future lies, not in our separate silos. And um, in probably around 2012, 2013, I started getting into a conversation with a climate scientist at the Met Office and they were working on a series of films, actually, which was slowly going around each of the industries in the UK to look at how climate change is going to affect theirs, and fashion was on the list. So when I met them, we started talking about 2015, and they'd identified that with the speed that is required in order for everybody to feel comfortable around the knowledge around climate change, we need new ways of being able to talk about it that don't require you to be a scientist and don't terrify people. The dress is the Trojan horse. Dress the Trojan horse, and they'd worked out that it would be the music industry with its huge fan bases, and, and in a sense, the fashion industry with its huge fan bases. I wish bases. the music could do some more, please. I haven't seen a lot. Yes, mm. yes, there should be more. You're right. Um, and so could I create a piece that would allow people to ask questions almost without them realising they were asking them. So to undo people with beauty first. Um, wow, wow. Say that again. Beautiful phrase. <laughs> to undo people with beauty first. And that's always been the way I've wanted to work with science, which is to work with its wonder, um, not with its threat, or the things that it points to in terms of human threat. And to begin with, with my fashion hat on, I thought, it's going to have to be fashion technology. It's going to have to be, you know, covered in wires and uh, you're going to have to be able to talk to it with your phone. And, and then I was in, a, in an airport lounge on my way to meet my long-term textile partner, Trish Belford, and on the screen all I could see were people walking from Syria oh. and, um, oh, and the tents. Yeah. And that was that moment so it was I news. really... it was news. It was in the news. It was news, You saw the yeah. footage and thought it was that. It was the first flight in the morning. I was only... only think scandalously they're probably the only person on it and just on all the nine screens around me all I could see was people walking you know children in bags and and where they were landing up then was Zattery and I didn't even know it was Zattery but that's when I realized I needed a cloth with humanity already in it it wasn't about creating anything new it was about using a piece of cloth that had the threads of all of this already inherently within it and so I sent an email from Departures. Well, you really out. had that moment. It was that moment. You thought yeah, it was, it was that. really, really quite a moment. And suddenly everything I shouldn't do became really, really clear. I found out, Googled who was head of UN for comms, found her, <laughs> sent her an email, got I off the plane. Google. Yeah, got off the plane and she'd answered. It was just extraordinary. That's happened about five times in my career, actually, where I've sent a you-don't-know-me email and something has come back that's changed everything. And that cloth was... And that cloth, well, she said, yes, I can get you a tent. And that tent came from Zattery. So the cloth of the dress is tents that had housed refugee family in Zattery. It was once a, um, housed a family of six. And every mark on it is a mark of their living. And what actually took me to the camp, I hadn't thought that I would go beyond making the dress, was that I couldn't answer the questions that children asked me about the dress. So when the dress was exhibited? At St Pancras, yeah. We had what lots sort of, of school visits. I mean, some of them were deeply personal. Where is this family now? Um, I'm just thinking of the, the child's eye on it. Yeah. You know, I understand kids lived in it. Where are they? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Kids like me. Yeah, and then some would try and crawl underneath it, under the dress as if it was still a tent. Others would just point to a footprint and say, whose is that? 
Some wanted to know how long does it take to walk from Syria to Jordan, and mostly concerned for where the family are now. Just out of interest, it occurs to me, what sorts of questions did the adults ask? Well, on the back of the dress, we had worked on a projection with yeah. a company called Holition, which showed the world as we recognise it and the world Data. as it would be. Yeah. So basically, uh, as the world would it be if we don't do enough? And of course, when you looked at that projection and you understood what that data meant, those then ended up being the questions that most adults asked, because when you looked at the map, you didn't recognise the world anymore, because what it had mapped is the amount of the profile of different countries had fallen into the sea. You mentioned before that this is our everybody's future, potentially. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're a species on the move. In some ways, we always have been, but we're going to be on the move in the millions very, very soon. And we haven't yet learned what that means. It's confronting stuff, isn't it? And yet, back to your idea of the Trojan horse, I've heard you say before that fashion can be such a powerful force because of its seeming surface concern, its beauty, its gorgeousness, just seems to be something to enjoy. And yet you use it as this powerful tool to unpack or Mm. ask very difficult questions about where we fit in the future or how we relate to one another, what's happening geopolitically. Talk to me a bit about that what fashion can be for in the right hands, I suppose. What it can do, maybe. Yeah, in many ways fashion is a gift because it has selfishness and you at its heart. It's how we, in some ways, how we get to be who we are. You know, from very early age, we, we start to make choices when we're able to about how we want to be seen by others. In a way, what we're trying to do is to attract others, be parts of peer groups. But we're using our clothing to say something about us without words. And that's very, very powerful. So if you can put that in service to something that's more important than fashion, then you've got a very powerful combination. It's at once about you and it's about everybody else as well. If Dress for Our Time was raising big questions about climate change and people on the move, previous work that you've done raises questions about our rampant consumerism, our so-called disposable fashion system. Let's talk about the dissolving dress. Mm. Well, there are two projects that came before this one that made me feel it was well worth staying in fashion. The first one was... Were you thinking of getting out? Well, only in so much as I have forever loved it and also been its biggest critic. And in many ways, it's about how you live the tension between those two things. But it's having the ability to be critical, which when you move away, particularly from commercial fashion, where selling is the reason why you, you, know, you, you stay alive, as it were, there's a privilege in being in the world of research or in the world of knowledge exchange, where you can afford to ask the questions that perhaps those who are commercially still living by fashion can't ask. <laughs> we have been challenged greatly with sound, but we're just going to roll with it because that is the nature of this particular interview. And you don't mind, do you, dear listener? <laughs> We've got pipes, we've got everything. Wonderland came about in a way because I wondered what fashion could say to some of the biggest challenges of our time. And uh, back then I was thinking about plastics. And I heard a Professor Tony Ryan on Radio 4 talking about plastics in a way that he, was sort of, he felt like a combination between a geek and a stand-up comic. Uh, but so I, someone very approachable. Um, and so our collaboration started when we were looking at the fact that plastic is actually very precious. And, and this is Tony... Tony Ryan. Who is a chemist at the University of Sheffield. That's right, yes. And is director of uh, something called the Grantham Centre for Sustainability. And 
We wanted to be able to have a conversation about the preciousness of plastic rather than seeing it as a piece of rubbish back then. And the only way to do that was to, to honour the fact that plastic is precious. It's buried sunshine, it's oil, it's taken millions of years to get here. And so we thought we would design something beautiful that we would then destroy very slowly in front of people. Design so something beautiful that took many, many hours and much many, many emotional hours. and yes. creative input. In and fact, then... Trish, my textile designer, actually cried after the first dress we dissolved. But, OK, how long did it take you to make it? Um, Describe it. Well, so... Shut up, pipes! <laughs> well, the dress that she was very upset was called the Megastar dress, and what we decided to do was to count the hours it had taken to make each piece, and we advertised those, if you like, as part of the labelling. In a way, to show what the sort of labour footprint was, well, or the labour so of love. Because in your work, because this is a whole other thing, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, they, they, again, it was children. It's so nice the way children have kind of come in and halted us every now and again. So when we were dissolving these dresses in big bowls of water outside Marks and Spencers <laughs> in Sheffield, it's basically had started off as uh, big sheets of dissolvable polymer that are then um, lovingly punctured into lace and then they have individual lasered flowers on them and each flower tip responds to water differently depending on the colour of the dye. So we'd worked out that actually if you charge a flower with a black dye or charge it with a red dye that they will be attracted to each other and they will chase each other in water. And this is the great thing about taking creative risks is you're nearly always rewarded with something that you cannot imagined previously and when these dresses dissolved what you had in effect as they started to hit the water and the hemlines start to wriggle just even when they sense the water is that when they go in the water and dissolve what you have is a like a biological ballet where all the elements that have been dissolved then start to have a second life underwater and of course with the sort of perspective of the bowl they get enlarged enormously so you made this freaky dress out of a dissolvable polymer that you 27 of them yeah which we'd lowered on scaffolds, which, and we'd worked what, what, out the dissolve rate. Oh, my God. So you made this dress. It's basically couture, a kind of yes. high-tech, weird, digital chemistry yes. couture. It'll be never seen again. I'm reminded of someone describing you as an alchemist before. But you made this mad creation. You made 27 yeah. of them. Yeah. You suspend them from scaffolding. Scaffoldings, which are made with kind of Heath Robinson-esque bicycle parts. And we worked out... Whereabouts? <laughs> Where did you display all this magic? So, well, at the Glossius, they were at the Royal Academy, and at their most mainstream, they were in Meadowhall Shopping Centre in Sheffield. Get out. Mm. Get over, in, because I used to go weeks. to Sheffield University myself, and I yes. know the Meadowhall Shopping Centre, yes. and you would not think that this was a place to find such wonder. So, as Tony said, we, we took an anti-consumerist message to a palace of consumerism. But nobody noticed, because it was beautiful. And so hang on, then you just destroy them. Slowly, yeah. And the most poignant comments as ever from children, why are you destroying something that's so beautiful? And that allows us to say that's precisely what we're doing. And we can have that conversation about the planet because the destroying of a beautiful dress has allowed that conversation to happen. Wow. I mean, honestly, there are so many ideas in that project alone. I feel like you're talking about 
the cost and time of labor and the love that goes into labor you're talking about the ephemeral nature of what we love you're talking about how we destroy our environment without even realizing and what beauty should mean and where we should be headed there was an even better bit though which is we made a bottle that also dissolved but it dissolved into a soil substitute and you could grow flowers and herbs in it so you get rid of this packaging problem that we're all crazy about quite rightly but you turn it into something that can grow flowers and herbs and the reason that one didn't... I mean, what I've realised is a lot of these projects are often 10 years ahead of their time. I was time. going to say how, actually, this should be the most famous work in this conversation. I mean, we, 10 years on, we're talking about plastic pollution on a grand scale. We're talking about climate. We're talking about the intersections of fashion yeah. and tech. But maybe you're too early. Yeah, yeah. There's, there aren't many advantages to being first, unless you're Tim Berners-Lee. Um, Who is? Invented the World Wide Web. <laughs> but what sorts of reactions did you get? Because it's also very unexpected to I know that Tony's from Sheffield but mm. to choose Meadowhall as your your venue I mean it's you're well, just the never best, doing the obvious thing never the, but the best place to take ideas is into the public mm. domain and and the best way to get public attention is to interrupt everyday life which was why the dress was at a train station and why the dresses were so what what kinds of reactions did you get from media and from the art world and the fashion world well I eventually get good reactions, but it's always eventually because no one's interested in a dress that's going to be dissolved in a few minutes. Because you can't buy it. You can't buy it. And we had very, very stupid comments, you know. What happens if you wear it in the rain? <laughs> Don't. Or you get sweaty in a nightclub. And so, <laughs> so in a way, the fashion industry has missed the point. Catalytic clothing came after Wonderland and it was, again, looking at another big global challenge, which is air pollution and the amount of people it kills, smokers or not. So you um, made a dress that could basically Purify <laughs> the air, yeah. And then we realised halfway through that actually denim was the most efficacious surface for this technology and there are more pairs of jeans on the planet than there are people. So if we could just get it onto denim, we'd be doing a good thing. And then the whole premise was you don't buy special clothes for this. It's a laundry product. You wash it onto your clothes that you wash anyway. And once it's on there, it's there forever. I remember reading about this, and it is actually very well known amongst those who look at fashion and tech, I suppose, as an early example of just what could be done. But, you know, we didn't take it up. You can't buy this washing powder in the supermarket. But that's political, the reason why you can't buy it. So we did it around the time of the Olympics when we were very loudly saying these are going to be the most green Olympics on, you know, on earth, as it were, ever. And yet we knew the air quality that the marathon runners would be taking in didn't even meet the European standards. So the idea was to offer this up as... Um, and we got past proof of concept, we knew it worked, but we needed to test it at scale. And initially, this was pre-Sadiq Khan's mayorship, if that's the right word to use. When we wanted to do it at scale, you know, the Department of Environment said it's not us, it's the Department of Transport. The Department of Transport said it's not us, it's the government. The government said it's not us, it's industry who would make the money out of it. So it just got pushed around. Meanwhile, there are other things in the world that need solving as well. Still, if you could bring that to market, I would buy it. Yes, everybody <laughs> we've ever speak to says that, says, why can't I buy it? I want to finish up by asking you to look back at your younger self, because... We started by saying, referencing Kingston, and you studied there, and yeah. you had what we might call a conventional fashion career, although a very stellar one. You ran your eponymous brand, you were a fashion designer. How do you think you got from there to here? And I don't want to get into the whole biography story of what happened with the label, but looking mm. back at your younger self, what would you say to her? That question gets asked a lot. What, why do people want to know that question? 
because I suppose from the outside looking in, it's a fascinating trajectory that you've had such a non-linear fashion life, I suppose. Yeah. And I can't think of very many, if any, examples of commercially celebrated fashion designers who have turned so far into different realms. You might say someone else has been on this podcast, Catherine Hamner. Yeah, I think mine comes from the fact that I had no early education and I had to teach myself to learn completely circumstantially. August baby, which means you go into school in September and no one knows whether you put you up a class or down a class. Early childhood illness, missed some core early learning. Went to a very rough comprehensive school where an awful lot of middle class children came out with no O-levels. Had to rapidly catch up at various further education colleges, but basically felt a failure right up to the age of 19 until I found myself with the last place on offer at Kingston's foundation course, where I met 23 other people who hadn't got a clue what they were going to do. And, and so there's a maverickness that comes with starting off from the back foot. And I'm always drawn towards things where dark can be turned into light at some level. I like this. I was Googling you and in 2016 you did an interview with the Financial Times and they asked you, what would you do if you lost everything tomorrow? And you said, losing everything is an opportunity to recreate yourself. Good. <laughs> she sounds like she knows what she's talking about. <laughs> but you, when your business went tits up, yeah. you went a completely different route. You didn't go home and cry or try and do the same thing again. Probably did go home and cry. But you didn't try to replicate the same process again. You went in a completely different direction. No, I mean, I, the fashion industry is a hamster wheel. And um, it may have changed a bit since I was in... <laughs> shaking your head. You don't um, think, you think it's got worse? <laughs> but it's as painful as it was to lose it, because, boy, did we invest a lot in it in all sorts of different ways. Losing it allowed me to think again about what really mattered. Um, so there was some freedom came with the loss as well. And do you think, I mean, is it a long bow to draw to say that that's how we might have to think about our future if we, or how people in Zattery are thinking about their future? I mean, hard to put those words into someone's experience when you haven't lived it, but I do think that from destruction can come great creativity or from adversity can come new paths. Yes, I mean, people are very interested in the word resilience, for example, particularly around the people that live in Zattery. And I've uh, been talking to the filmmaker, David, and we, we were wondering whether actually resilience isn't a skill but an emotion. Because when we see it most profoundly in the camp, what's happening at that moment that that resilience is showing itself is human kindness, which is despite everything that is around you, you are being able to do something for another. So I think our future rests in our ability to remain connected. And it's got to become far more relational and far more intuitive. And I think in a way we have to honour and value intuition in the way that we have only ever historically valued logic. And that these are some of the things that Zattery teaches you. So hope and despair are also teachers. Now it's getting hard. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell them go away because everything is just fine. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. 
you can get in touch there and I really hope you will I'd love to hear from you and you can also find links to my social media and finally if you're enjoying the show please head over to iTunes and subscribe you know what they say first in best dressed subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion the better Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you.